Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Uh, for years, our American national security ag agencies have been charged with protecting the United States and its citizens from foreign threats to our safety. But national security is no longer just about threats to our freedom from external enemies. For conservatives, we also need to be concerned about our enemies within. For decades, our security agencies, you know, the, the alphabet soup agencies, the CIA, DIA, DOD, NSA, and, and even the FBI um, have been drifting leftward. And as we'll talk about today, increasingly woke. And they're beginning to target those who disagree with their politics. Uh, recently, former CIA chief John Brennan declared that political libertarians in America should now be considered domestic terror threats. How did this happen? Where do we go from here? Uh, join me to explore this troubling trend as Fred Flights, the president and CEO of the Center for Security Policy, and Dr. Michael Waller, the senior analyst for strategy at the Center for Security Policy, both have many decades of experience in national security, with Fred most recently serving as a deputy assistant to President Donald Trump. Mike holds a PhD in international security affairs and got his start as an insurgent with the Nicaraguan Contras. I don't know where we go from there, guys. Oh. Mike, Fred, uh, your achievements, I've got your, you, they go on for pages, but I thought we'd jump right into this. I don't know, Fred, why don't, we, why don't we kick off with you? What's going on with these agencies? And there's a recruiting ad that I want to run uh, fairly soon about who the CIA thinks, uh, thinks their new employees ought to be. Well, Bill, it's great to be here. I think there's many conservatives who think that our intelligence agencies went off the rails, went into politicization during the Trump administration. That's actually not true. I was with the CIA for 25 years, and I've, I've seen extraordinary politicization throughout my career. I remember in, in, uh, in, in the mid-2000s when efforts by the CIA to stop George Bush from being reelected led the Wall Street Journal to run an editorial titled The CIA Insurgency. We know in the 60s that there were efforts by CIA managers to tell analysts to keep politics out of your work. We know where these people come from. They come from universities. They're taught by liberal professors. It got much worse during the Trump administration. And I think we have to be honest that part of this was the Trump administration's fault. I think that the president would be the first to say that if he was reelected, he was really going to clean house. I think he got some bad advice on some top managers. He started to fix that with the nomination of John Radcliffe and Rick Grinnell to intelligence positions. When you're an outsider president, you come into Washington, you have to deal with what you, what, you, what you inherit. And I could see things improving as the administration went on. But the key thing here is that conservatives have to, conservative presidents have to put in top leadership at a variety of levels to keep these agencies honest, to keep politics out of their work, because there is a drift towards the left that is getting worse and worse. I think it can be countered, but it was not countered effectively over the last four years. Mike, what do you see? You've been through this uh, for decades. Yeah, it's been going on when I was a when I was an undergrad in, in Reagan's first term. I wanted to go into the CIA, and mm -hmm. I had a professor who was 
an active duty intelligence officer who moonlighted as an adjunct professor at George Washington University. And he took me aside and said, you don't want to go there. Goes, Why? He says, you're too conservative. They'll, they'll grind you down. They'll chew this you This was up. in the they'll 80s? Spit you out. 1983. Wow. When Bill Casey was CIA director. This was when the CIA didn't even want to analyze Soviet active measures campaigns, the propaganda campaigns and the guerrilla insurgencies and terrorist campaigns against the United States when they, when they were denying that the Soviets were behind international terrorism. So w when Reagan had and Casey forced the CIA to do a reassessment of its own intelligence to show that the, that the CIA was doing what journalists like Claire Sterling at Reader's Digest had already proven, <laughs> that mm -hmm. the Soviets were behind all this. So, so even early then in the 80s, they were hiring uh, Communist Party voters like John Brennan to join the CIA, but they didn't want... He voted for Gus Hall? He voted for Gus Hall. Yeah. <laughs> and his running mate, Angela Davis. A AOC light. <laughs> right. <laughs> and his, his and running mate who? Angela Davis, of course, is the yeah, founder yeah. of the Defund the Police movement and yeah. a lot of the BLM activities that we're seeing today. And, of course, Brennan's fine with all of that. I might add, I was hired by the Office of Global Issues in 1986. It was an office designed to counter the left-wing Soviet analysis office called the Office of Soviet Analysis. And when I wrote international analysis, they didn't want me to say anything negative about Gorbachev. They saw moral equivalency between the United States and, and, and the Soviet Union. I mean, that's where we started, and it got so much worse under Obama and under Trump. And as I said, we need a house cleaning. We need a large number of officials that a Republican president will put in to clean the place up and keep it honest. Now, I went through the alphabet soup. How pervasive is this? Is this across all the agencies or some worse than others? Is there a... I'd say... I, I think of the State Department. There was a great book uh, by what Robert Kaplan called the Arabists, and it was about at the State Department in the 20s and 30s really had a group of people that became enthralled with Arab culture, and they just pick the side of the Arabs no matter what. And so when Israel came about uh, after World War II, Israel was in the crosshairs of the State Department from, uh, from day one. Yeah. It's a real problem across the government. I worked at the State Department for five years, and uh, it was fairly, fairly clear that, that the, the, the Middle East Bureau uh, was pretty hostile towards Israel and very favorable towards Arabs. And the problem is, a lot of these analysts, both at state and at CIA and other organizations, they go native. They start thinking like the nation they've been hired to analyze. Their country is the United States, not Saudi Arabia, et cetera. I, I will say of the various agencies, I think the best was, this, was the Defense Intelligence Agency. I was in so many interagency intelligence efforts where we would try to put out a national intelligence assessment of all the agencies. Frequently, the only holdout was the Defense Intelligence Agency, mm -hmm. which would not go along with efforts to put out a consensus product at, at, at all means. I don't like consensus intelligence products. I want to have dissenting views. I want to hear what the different agencies uh, said. Instead, we get this vanilla consensus product that's always politically correct, and rarely, but it does happen sometimes, are there analysts who stand up to that. Usually they were from the Defense Intelligence Agency. How many people work in the national security establishment? Is it 100,000? I mean, it, it's huge now because of the contractors. You, so you have retired intelligence and national security personnel leaving, even retiring early to collect their pension and become contractors. So they're making three, four, five hundred thousand a year just based on government service, milking the taxpayer because most of the work is, is way overpriced and of marginal use. 
So it's really hard to say. I don't think there's a full accounting of just how large it's become because of the contracting. And their background, I think about the, what the precursor of the CIA was, well, I forget what it was called during World War. OSS. OSS, run by some guy named Wild Bill. Donovan. Donovan, yeah. And he was from Yale or Harvard, and he would only recruit from the Ivy League schools. So it started out as a fairly elite Ivy League organization. The CIA was staffed like that uh, throughout the 50s and 60s, if I'm right. Yeah, that was the, that was sort of the, the so-called establishment schools, yeah. Uh, and there was there was good reason for it because they did have some of the best thinking professors. If you think of say Marshall Shulman at Harvard and and people like that who were teaching on Soviet mm -hmm. area studies, and so they had the, the most money, the finest area studies and talent that they could possibly bring in. But it became a club, and then it became uh, you know a gene pool of its own that becomes mutated. So they weren't getting people from real America coming in, who were really more representative of of the American public. So then you have an elite forming that is so disconnected from American society that it doesn't consider itself part of American society. But, but many of us think the OSS were the best days of our intelligence uh, organization. Yeah, a couple of books I've read. They so were a can-do organization. Yeah. They, they, they tried to do the impossible. If you read their exploits in World War II, some of the things they, they did were a little bit outlandish. I was good friends with Ambassador Hugh Montgomery. Who, who was a, a deputy ambassador to the UN under Bernard Walters. He also knew Bill Donovan. He, he died recently in his 90s. And he's told me stories about what the CIA used to be in its early days, how it was a can-do organization that wasn't weighed down with political correctness and consensus thinking. It simply tried to get the truth to the president and to protect our nation through some pretty aggressive covert actions. And he just lamented how our intelligence community has become this 17-agency uh, disaster of overlapping agencies, uh, political correctness, seven or eight agencies doing the same thing. Uh, they all want to have fairness in terms of analyzing key issues. I don't know how many organizations look at counterterrorism, look, look at uh, uh, voter fraud. Yeah. There's enormous duplication. And that's still the case. Has anybody tried? It was signed, I guess the security agencies we have now were signed in the law in 1947 by Harry Truman. Has anybody tried to reform that in the last, uh, what is that, <laughs> 70 years or something like that? I mean, what, uh, is this, it's just, just grown and morphed? I mean, we have uh, no change agents? Well, over time, it got worse. More and more agencies were created, okay. and as once they're created, they get larger. Now, there was the Intelligence Reform Act of 2004, created after 9-11, which created the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, which became a huge additional layer of bureaucracy. Okay. It was supposed to coordinate to get the agencies to cooperate. Instead, it is growing in leaps and bounds with thousands of employees. Bill, there is a DNI headquarters near Tyson's Corner. You would not believe how large it is. It's larger than the CIA building. It's stunning. Wow. Well, now they were recruiting for political people on the political left generally, but now there's some, there's a like a third dimension to this. Now that now it's the cultural left. And the CIA is running an ad now that I wanted to show to get your reaction. I used to struggle with imposter syndrome, but at 36, I refuse to internalize misguided patriarchal ideas of what a woman can or should be. I am tired of feeling like I'm supposed to apologize for the space I occupy rather than intoxicate people with my effort, my brilliance. I am proud of me, full stop. My parents left everything they knew and loved to expose me to opportunities they never had. 
Because of them, I stand here today a proud first-generation Latina and officer at CIA. I am unapologetically me. I want you to be unapologetically you, whoever you are. Know your worth, command your space. Mija, you're worth it. So the CIA has now become a safe place for snowflakes. We both what's, have strong what's views. Going on, on, what's going on here? I we, mean, this is this is crazy. We both have strong views on this, but Mike's are really good. I want Mike to go first. <laughs> In that ad, there's not one mention of service to country. First of all, there's yeah. not one sense of mission in that statement. You have a militant, uh, uh, feminist extremist who admits that she's emotionally disturbed. She was diagnosed with a mental health syndrome by her own words. You can't be an intelligence officer if you have a mental health issues like that. It, 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 it's, it's, it's beyond one's imagination to, to think that the CIA would promote someone like that as a recruitment tool, let alone hire it. But it's all about me, 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 I, 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 my brilliance. Since when do you say that in any kind of you know, recruitment ad unless it's for some high school team or something? You know, to, to affirm someone's sense of inferiority. That's, that's what this agency is promoting. But worst of all in that, look at the logo she's wearing on her shirt. It's a clenched fist. That's a Bolshevik symbol. The Bolsheviks started it. The American supporters of the Bolsheviks in the early 20th century pushed that. And now you have the CIA using that as a recruitment tool, adapting the enemy's own imagery. Uh, you're watching The Bill Walton Show. I'm here talking with Mike Waller and Fred Flights, and we're talking about a recent CIA recruitment ad that's really unbelievably disturbing. Fred? Well, I agree with what Mike said, but what I would add as a former CIA analyst, the CIA does serious work. It, it, uh, CIA officers handle extremely classified information, and if it's used well, lives can be saved. If it is misused, people die. And it's not an exaggeration. The sources will die. The information may, may not get to a policymaker to stop a terrorist attack. We need the best and brightest in jobs like this. The CIA is not a federal jobs program. It's not the post office. I know people in the post office won't like hearing that. But we really need the best and brightest. It is not racist or, or doesn't represent white supremacy if a manager has to fill two jobs analyzing Iran's nuclear program. And the two best candidates are Harvard physicists. Hiring them is the best decision to protect our, our, our freedom. You don't hire less qualified people to make the workforce fair. That's what started under John Brennan, the CIA director in the Obama administration. And unfortunately, it was not reversed during the Trump administration. This terrible video was made during the Trump administration, in the final months of the Trump administration. It's part of a series called The Humans of CIA. This is something that has to be reversed. And I, I don't think it's going to happen under the Biden administration. It has to be a priority of the next president. The CIA is a crucial organization to keep us free and safe. And this type of social engineering quotas for hiring and promoting is going to destroy it. The woman who replaced uh, Pompeo at the CIA, is she still there? She was a career CIA type who was dedicated to this kind of thing, as I understand it. Uh, Gina Haspel. Gina she Haspel. was a career okay. officer. At, no, she, she resigned on January 20th. Uh, okay. I understand she wanted to stay, but uh, okay. the Biden administration, look, look, Democrats are clever. The number two position at the CIA is a non-confirmable SIS job. 
and the Democrats always fill them with political operatives. I, I regret that there was not a loyal Trump person there when a career person, Gina Haspel, was heading the CIA. I think that's another lesson Republicans have to learn. We have to learn how to take control of government to make it better and not let the career bureaucrats take over. What's the interaction between the agencies and Congress, the Senate and the House? I mean, are the people, are the staffers in, in the Congress um, in bed with what's going on in the agencies, opposed to, does it depend on the party? What's, uh, have they gone uh, uh, native as well? Well, Fred, was, Fred had that role, so he being in the agency and then on the House Intelligence Committee Of course, staff, the problem so I have, have with his, you guys that have yeah. been in intelligence, you never really dish. I want, <laughs> we're going to have to. Well, I never was in. I was, I, <laughs> I was not, I would so, not have been accepted. I don't. I don't. But, but it, it, there's a revolving door part of it where you have, there, Congress is not performing its oversight capabilities, which is its constitutional role right. to oversee the executive branch. And it is simply mainly taking the intelligence community at its word and not really asking the tough questions and doing the tough oversight that it should be doing. Not even the Republicans are doing it on these select committees, uh, to, with the exception of Devin Nunes, who, who was finally a, 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 an aggressive House Intelligence Committee chairman who really went to the mat over the politicization part. But beyond that, quality of personnel, hiring with with clowns like this one, like Mika, who they put there, mm -hmm. uh, making sure you have proper analysis and, and integrity in, in, in analysis and everything else. That's not done to any extent uh, by the Congressional so Oversight Committee. The traditional voting voter thinks, well, gee, we've got Congress to oversee the agencies and administration. That's just not happening. It's not only not happening here, it's not happening in the other parts of government. So... Congress has sort of punted on this one as well. They're, they're not doing the job that they should. I, I have to tell you, just to concern the CIA, they're very good at co-opting people. They co-opt foreigners, they co-opt Congress. Uh, they bring them on incredible trips, show them all kinds of uh, secrets that you couldn't imagine. When I was a low-level staffer with the House Intelligence Committee, I was there for five years, I had a VIP parking spot in front of the CIA. They're very good at working you over, so you're working for them. Now, I refuse to work for them, and I'll tell you a story of something they did. I joined the Intelligence Committee in 2006, and the Republicans lost the House, and I thought I'd be fired, but I wasn't fired. The CIA and the State Department Intelligence and Research Bureau called up the staff director and told them they wanted me to be let go from the staff because they thought I would not be fair to them. So I'm supposed to oversee them, and the agencies that I'm overseeing want to be overseen by someone else. And my staff director came to me and said, you know, I can't think of, of a stronger vote of confidence in keeping you on the staff that the people you oversee don't like you, that you've been tough with them. And a Pete Hoker, I told that to Pete Hoker, it's one of his favorite stories, but this is what they do. They try to work the people who are overseeing them to co-opt them so, so these agencies can get what they want from Congress. And Pete Hostrow was head of the House Intelligence Committee, and uh, he's now, what, head, chairman of the... Uh... Center for Security Policy Advisory Board? That's correct. He just joined us. It's a tremendous pickup, and he recently was President Trump's ambassador to the Netherlands. So I'm not feeling more secure. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> because, you know, for laymen, and I, I spent my career in Wall Street, and so I didn't really focus on this, but the more you think about it, it's a national security. We've, I mentioned at the outset we've got the traditional fighting enemies that have armies and they want to take things over. But increasingly, it's not about that. 
I mean, it's about economic warfare, it's about cultural warfare, it's about infiltrating uh, our institutions. And, uh, you know, I have to bring up China. I mean, China's had a strategy, what are they called, three warfares, four warfares, where they're, they're, they see themselves fighting on these, all these fronts. And I think you've done some work on the Confucius uh, societies that one of the guys in your shop has, where they've got people in the United States, or they've embedded themselves on the campuses of universities to, to really promote Chinese propaganda. Mm -hmm. So do I worry about Chinese infiltrating the agencies? Absolutely. Think of this. You have the Chinese Communist Party-run Confucius Institutes, which are embedded with Chinese intelligence officers and then controlled agents from China. Where the Chinese students go there and they pay cash. So the American universities love Chinese students because they pay the freight for the American students who don't pay for their... And there are about 250,000, 300,000 Chinese students in Huge America. Huge number here, and the universities depend on the Chinese Communist Party for, for funding. It's not a political thing. It's a financial matter. So when you have a Confucius Institute set up to teach about Chinese culture and to teach uh, Mandarin language and so forth, this is an opportunity to propagandize American students who are going to be future... Uh, future Wall Street people, future intelligence officers, future diplomats, to teach them the Chinese language the way the Communist Party wants them to understand the language and therefore to understand all of China. But they also run it as an assessment and recruitment station to mark American students to be invited to China to spend a year where they can then be assessed even further and even recruited or compromised. Mm. Or, or simply to to do the same thing on campus with, with American students who will never go to China. Now, when you have the national security community hiring its personnel or getting graduate degrees for its personnel at these universities with Confucius Institutes, you're creating a massive security risk for our entire national security community. Don't the Chinese have a, doesn't the Chinese Communist Party have a doctrine that if you are a, China, if you're a citizen of China, you're responsible and owe a duty to the state any place you are, any, anywhere you are in the world. And so if you're a Chinese student here studying at Illinois State or something like that, you're still supposed to be a Chinese agent. Right, you're expected to be for two reasons, and not for the nation, but for the party. So, so if we the, need to make that distinction sometimes, because as we say, some of my best friends are Chinese. So we get a Chinese Communist Party. Yeah. That's the, of course, that's eighty million people. That's right, but some of your best friends are not communist. I would hope, right? <laughs> not that I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. well, I, I, I want to add that a few years ago, there was an American student studying in China who the Chinese uh, convinced to apply to work for the CIA, and the CIA caught him. I think in the polygraph. And it led to FBI warnings to students studying in China uh, to not be co-opted by Chinese intelligence. I hope those warnings are continuing because it's a real threat. The Chinese are very serious about this, and Americans don't understand how serious this is. Uh, my hope is that the CIA is scrutinizing the people very carefully so this won't happen. But this effort, which I think is to lower standards, to make the workforce more fair, will create opportunities for hostile intelligence services to penetrate the CIA. You know, the polygraph is tough. The background investigation is tough. Are we going to lower those standards so we can make the CIA more ethnically diverse? I think we're about to do that, and I'm very worried about it. It seems, it seems like that's got to be where it goes next. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've lowered them every place else. I mean, look what they've done 
with women in combat, they lower the standards and the women still can't meet the physical standards, but it doesn't seem to matter. Um, boy, this is, uh, so the, you know, let me just pause here. You're, uh, you're watching the Bill Walton Show and I'm here with Fred Flights and Mike Waller of the Center for Security Policy and we're talking about Confucius Institutes and their, their role on United States campuses to uh, really promote the agenda of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, that's what they do. It's what they do. So the, the, the Chinese, uh, let me shift, let me shift to something else you've worked on that does have to do with the Chinese and the, and the national security establishment, the Wuhan virus. It was pretty clear to us a year ago, or me, probably you, that this, this came out of the lab. And yet to say that you do, you get, uh, your YouTube yank from, or your video yank from YouTube. It, you know, it happened to me. Uh, the blackout was the national security uh, community involved in, in covering up. Or was I know the Chinese covered up, but were we complicit in that? I don't know. I I, I don't see the cover up so much from the national security community. Well, let's back up. What yeah. did the Chinese do to cover it up? Oh, well, what they did right away is they repressed the actual scientists who blew the whistle in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. They silenced them. Some of the bloggers disappeared from the face of the earth. Yet someone's still running their social media accounts. They were repressing Wuhan officials, and they Wuhan officials, fearful of, of the central power of the Chinese Communist Party, didn't know what to do, knew that they could also be sacked or even disappear if they said anything. So they covered everything up. Even when, even when people died, they covered up. I think there's evidence that the intelligence community was covering this up. In January of this year, uh, Director of National Intelligence Radcliffe released a, a, an intelligence ombudsman report. This is someone who looks at the objectivity of, of intelligence community analysis. And it said that concerning meddling in the 2020 election, uh, analysts tried to put out anything they could that said Russia was meddling, but suppressed anything that said China was meddling, because they did not want to help President Trump's policy views. I have no doubt this was happening concerning the coronavirus also. And it is the type of corruption of our analysis which really threats the whole existence of our intelligence community. And it is just too bad that the president did not have better leaders heading these agencies for all four years. That's why this kind of stuff happens. Just a note to our, lure, our, our viewers and listeners, if you want to get what I think is the truth about what's going on with our national security I'd head over to the uh, Center for Security Policy website, and because of a lot of the things that we now know to be true, you were writing about uh, a year ago, more. Yeah. Yeah, right when it happened. And that's kind of the key, is the temptation is so strong in Washington to, to cave in when you know you're right, you're working with facts, but everyone around you is pressuring you not to say those facts whether it's deplatforming you from social media or whether it's, it's uh, any kind of political connection or political support or journalist uh, contacts or whoever, there's this temptation to do it. And, th and that's why so many people in Washington cave so quickly on so many issues, which is, I think, what kind of makes us different. Fred and I get along so well because we're not, <laughs> we're not part of that group. So we have a great track record, and we're pleased with that track record, and that's why we don't adjust our website and pull things down uh, like other groups do uh, when, you know, they've been proven wrong 
Mike and I would be making more money. We'd be on CNN. We'd be published by the New York Times. Well, you're on the Bill Walton show. Well, I'm, and I'm lo- I love that <laughs> on the show, so that's why we're winning. But look, we all know that these really prestigious foreign policy outfits at Harvard and at Georgetown, yeah. people in the foreign policy community, they all want to work there. And if they want to work there, there's certain things they're not going to say. Mm-hmm. And people like Mike and I don't care about that. We said, well, let's just do the right thing, even though it means that we're never going to be hired to work at the JFK School at Harvard. You know, we're never going to be hired to work there, Mike. I would, I would never want those people as colleagues. Okay, so well, funny. me yeah. too. But, but I mean, it's, it, but it's a sacrifice you make because the left controls the foreign policy establishment. They have the best positions. They have the best paid organizations. So the Center for Security Policy is fighting an uphill battle. We just love it, and we've been doing well at it. But a lot of people are not ready for this fight. What's the left's agenda with regard to national security? Well, I want you to start that first. I have my thoughts. It's evolved over time. Before, uh, a lot of the left, they were just weak uh, toward the Soviet Union, Mm -hmm. the Soviet threat. And they were weak against the Islamist jihadist threat. Mm -hmm. And they were weak on the communist China threat Mm -hmm. and so many other threats out of a sense of disdain toward America and everything that we stood for. But it's become more of a cultural war now where they're trying to transform the very culture of our country with the 1619 project and the rejection of the whole Judeo-Christian ethic uh, that our country was founded on and those those, uh, Anglo-Saxon principles on which our country was founded. And total rejection of that and anything to do with that. So it's not just wrong, but it's evil. And that's what's being taught now in, uh, in uh, well, in Montgomery County, Maryland public schools, for example, yeah. to, to pit children against their parents and to have a rejection of now not just culture, but even parental authority and get the children actually to rebel against their parents and uh, through shaming them, uh, making them raise their hands to, to see whether or not they've had their COVID shot. And then if the kid doesn't raise his hand, it's because your mommy and daddy haven't done it. Go home and tell them to do it because all your friends have to wear masks. So you have this pervasiveness from now, K through retirement. And that would be the view of the young woman who was in that recruiting poster. I mean, she's probably a poster child for that. That, She probably believes everything you just uh, outlined. And it's all me, me, me. But you can see in another part of that ad or a related ad that she's in, there's a shot of her standing with John Brennan, CIA director. Now, what is a guy like, what is a CIA director doing with a supposedly lower level uh, analyst like her? And But you also saw the subsequent director, Trump's director, Gina Haspel, standing with her in a photo in that same ad. Well, then you find out she got a diversity award. Now, this is something when, this happened when back, she, when, she, when this particular person You're making in the this ad, up. No, no, no. <laughs> she, she got some diversity award for some... CIA officers that we need more diversity in the CIA. And it made sense to have it because you can't have all just white guys from Ivy Leagues at the CIA. You need people with all cultural backgrounds and all different ideas and worldviews as long as it's based on American constitutional principles. But now you're getting everything but those who embrace American constitutional principles. So you need people with these backgrounds. But if you want to promote great Latinos in the CIA, let's talk about James Jesus Angleton. He was one of the, the first and the greatest of the Latinos in the CIA, but he has an Anglo last name, so we don't think of him as that. They don't raise him as a, as a moral standard because he was a hardcore anti-communist. It's like Clarence Thomas is not a Supreme Court justice in the black community. You can tell Mike is quite a, an, an accomplished historian and can tell a lot of good stories. My view about the left's view in foreign policy is that America is not an exceptional nation. They want to promote globalism. 
the elites do not want the U.S. to have the ability to act on its own. They want us to act through the U.N. They want us to act with the permission of European states. That's why America First was so revolutionary. It factored in the interests of the American people, the American worker, American business. We weren't just signing contracts and treaties because the globalists wanted us to, even though it would hurt the American worker. President Trump was absolutely right. It also was a strategy to keep us out of unnecessary wars and to stop unending wars. We know these globalists and Republican and Democratic administrations have not thought through these long-term troop commitments. And what I think was brilliant about this plan is that it was so substantial. It's not going away. I think Biden is limited right now in what he can do in foreign policy because other nations know what a powerful approach this was and that the next Republican president who may be in office in January 2025 is going to put it all back into place. I don't think America First is going away. It's where the American people are. I was going to ask you about that. America, what's happened in the America First? This was Trump's strategy. And maybe you could briefly outline what America First was and what Biden's trying to do to it. I gave my take on it. What's your, what's your take? Well, I agree with your take, but I'll add a bit to it. And that is that we have, uh, over time, the bipartisan majority uh, leading our country has subsumed American interest to those of global organizations that we created yeah. to defeat the Nazis first and then to fight the Cold War, yet we surrendered them. Imagine creating an international organization and then allowing your enemies to infiltrate it and take it over. Mm -hmm. It makes no sense. It's not in our national interest to be part of these global organizations anymore. Well, that's what China is doing to the UN right now. Exactly. Yeah. But we created it for us to do it, and Stalin went along with it so he could do it. And, but the fact is, we stopped and China continued. So we have surrendered our national sovereignty to these international organizations that, where the China, Communist China, has veto power over our sovereignty now. So America first is, let's you know, respect what alliances we have and commitments we have, but let's reconsider them to think, who benefits from them? Is it a one-way street or is it a two-way street? And America first is American sovereignty first. So why have an ally who's useless to you or who's, who's, who's uh, lazy and not making its, its treaty commitments like even say Germany, not even, we're subsidizing Germany to compete against us internationally and they're not even paying their 2% for their own national defense and cutting side deals with Putin. Maybe we need to reassess our alliance system we certainly do with other countries. So, so America first is what is in the interests of the American citizen consistent with our constitutional founding principles. So you base everything off that and everything else makes sense. You, you know, the Biden administration likes to say that Donald Trump destroyed our international alliances. That's just not true. It's certainly not true in Asia. And, and I can tell you that, that all the nations in the region appreciate it. America's leadership against China. And it's not true with Europe. With Europe, we refuse to allow the Europeans to basically take our sovereignty away and tell our nation what to do. Trump made it clear that NATO states have to pay their fair share in, in, in terms of defense spending. Now, they didn't want to, and confronting them caused problems, but it was the right thing to do. Why should the American people bear most of the burden of defending Europe? Uh, Trump had very good relationships with other nations, but he didn't let them bowl us over. He didn't let the elites in these nations determine what American foreign policy is, and that's what's happening right now. The Europeans have resumed telling Joe Biden what he's going to do. And we saw this with the, key with the, uh, the uh, pipeline from Russia, which uh, um, Biden recently decided to, to allow to go forward. 
uh, even though the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, even though Donald Trump had tried to stop it because the Germans wanted it. It's not in our interest. It's not in Russian interest. It's not in European security interest, but it is in the interest of European globalists. Mm -hmm. uh, you're watching the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with uh, Mike Waller and Fred Flights, and we're talking about uh, America first foreign policy under Donald Trump and how we can uh, preserve some semblance of it in hopes that we'll have a Republican president in 2025. Uh, the, the issue, though, is that we need to get the word out about what this bad stuff is. And there's a news blackout, it seems like. And all the sort of things you talk about, the, the Wuhan cover-up is one example. I mean, there's also some thoughts that, would you, have you written about this, the Chinese uh, have infiltrated South Korea and maybe they've influenced the, out, the outcome of the South Korean election and so therefore South Korea may not be a reliable enemy. Right. Uh, the, Chinese defense budget is now, I think, larger than ours. Is that true in relative terms, percentage terms, or, or, or absolute terms? It, it's different. Uh, they're, they're doing things differently, and they can afford to do more with less. Okay. But they're, they're building a, a strategic nuclear weapons force that's more advanced than the one we have. You know, but they've got their eyes on, on you know, Taiwan seems to be one of, like a Richard Nixon issue. You know, that was Taiwan's a long time ago. Taiwan is 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 right center stage right now in terms of Chinese ambitions. If they get Taiwan, they get the South China Sea, they get the semiconductor industry that where all those are made, and don't they also con manufacture a lot of uh, pharmaceuticals there that that are that are strategic for us? It's crucial, and I think the time is coming when China will move on Taiwan. I don't know if that is in the immediate future, but but China will do that when it knows it can get away with it. I think it's looking for a moment of American weakness. And so I think this, this wow. makes a very dangerous time for Taiwan. I might add, the Center for Security Policy is doing a special webinar on how China would take Taiwan. And it's going to be next Wednesday at 1 p.m. Okay, we're doing a webinar. You guys are doing we are, a webinar? We are, yes. And how do we find that? Uh, it's on our website, securefreedom.org. Okay. How China would take Taiwan. Okay. So long as it doesn't interrupt watching this show. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, what do you think? Well, the, the, reading the, the public statements, the, not, not the private statements, the public statements the Chinese officials are making, they intend to take Taiwan by force sooner rather than later because they found now 70% of the Taiwanese people don't want any reunification at all with the mainland under any circumstances. They view themselves as a sovereign country now and not as a Republic of China that's been exiled to the island of Taiwan. They are their own nation. They are sovereign. They are Taiwan first. Uh, so they, so for the United States to, to allow the communists to invade Taiwan, it's going to destroy our, our our interest in the entire Indo-Pacific region, where we get the majority of our trade, where our economy depends. So these these countries that have not necessarily even our allies, but they look the other way and, and don't oppose us on things and often cooperate with us on things, and countries like India, which are increasingly cooperating with us, are going to think twice about building a solid relation with the United States if they see us standing by while the communists take over Taiwan. A big flaw in Biden's approach to China is that he said, well, we're going we're gonna to go after China with our allies. The problem is most of our allies do, are afraid of China. On China, America often has to act alone, whether it comes to tariffs or just calling them out. 
other nations are just not going to do that because the Chinese can ruin them economically and, and can ruin them in other ways. That was one, like when President Trump called out the Chinese, tweeted uh, attacks on the Chinese leadership, it had an effect. And, and I, I think the Biden people have no idea of this. I think the Chinese are already prepared to have our lunch during the Biden administration. Yeah, I'm fearing our moment of weakness is going to last four years. And that's a long time. It's almost forever. So what do, what's our line of action here? I mean, we're, you know, we're, we've got the agencies infiltrated by people that don't like the American culture and tend not to want to defend our Constitution and our borders. Um, we haven't talked about the borders, but I was at a conference last week and the, the just the past immediate head of ICE says, was down there says, we have no borders now. We've got like 175 countries that are sending people streaming into the United States. I mean, what do you, are you guys also tracking that or is that, is that part of your, uh, there's only so much we can track and others are working <laughs> border issues, but it's, it's you know, like still putting a thumb in the <laughs> dike somewhere. Yeah. But here with the border, the customs and border folks, the ones on the ground really are still there trying to protect our sovereignty yeah. as best as they can. It's the leadership in Washington that's not letting them do their job. But one of the areas that we do focus on that, that that's urgent, and I think the average citizen can really have a say in it, is the military. Mm -hmm. You have you know Pink Lloyd Austin, four-star general who was picked... Uh, to run the Defense Department because he is a woke four-star general. So Republicans find it irresistible not to confirm four-star generals for anything because they think people on their, with stars on their shoulders are cool and automatically solid uh, thinkers, which they're not necessarily. And they're, they're really, if they were civilians, they'd just be in the SES you know, career level, but they happen to have uniforms and stars on their shoulders, so they get, you know, people get wide-eyed at that. Lloyd Austin is a radical. He's an extremist, and he's brought in people who are even more extreme to create essentially a, what the Soviets called Zampolits, which are the political commissars, to ensure a new political orthodoxy within the military. You have the Defense Advanced Research and Projects Agency, DARPA, recently came out with a, a paper defining extremism in the military as people who believe that the central government is corrupt and is acting outside the bounds of its constitutional authority. Guilty as charged. Um, yeah. This is the he type also of happens to be black, and he also happens to be teaching critical race theory in the Defense Department. He's pushing it. He's imposing it. But it began way before He's him. opposing critical He's race? Imposing. He's imposing. Imposing. Yeah, yeah, I didn't think he yeah. was opposing. Yeah. Imposing. Yeah, but it predates him by a long time. Well, you know, we talked about the readiness of the troops. I mean, some people, you know, Jerry Boykin, who's a friend, who's general on our side, he says, you know, you put, you put woke, you put critical race theory in the in the uh, dugout or whatever wherever we fight our wars now, and you're supposed to not think the person next to you is on the same side. Uh, that's not how you win a war. I mean, that's not how you build a team, and so it's it's, it's creating these these divisions based on race that are just going to kill, ruin the, the fighting effectiveness of the, of the military. I'm, I'm troubled by that, and I'm troubled by what we've talked about for our intelligence agencies. But I, I think the good news is the vast majority of people who serve in the military and work in our intelligence agencies are not political. They're not going to go for this. They're going to listen 
and they're going to do their jobs, and they're going to wait for the next president. And I've seen this before. When crazy things happen out of the White House, there are professionals who work in these organizations. They know how to get the job done. They know how to salute and do the right thing. And I'm confident that, that, that our, our servicemen, they're going to hear this nonsense, and, and they're going to find ways to get the job done and to navigate this ridiculous obstacle that's being imposed on them with critical race theory, et cetera. And I have to say, most intelligence officers are not political. They're good people. But there are too many who have been promoted to the high levels who are a real problem have to be cleared, cleaned out. Well, I always try to end these on somewhat good news. That, that, that's as close as we've come to good news, is not everybody's in the camp. I think the other thing we think, I, I'm always interested in lines about, I think we need to, you guys are doing it. I think we need to shine a light on all this, uh, this bad stuff so that voters know what's going on and can vote the right way last time. I, I think Biden, I don't think anybody had a clue how radical his agenda was going to be. Look, the election was fixed by the media. The media would not scrutinize Biden yeah. properly. Yeah. And they dumped all over Trump. And I don't think voters were able to make an informed choice. We can have lots of debates about the election. But that's an issue I don't think people are talking about, that the American people were denied the information they needed to make an informed choice for, in the 2020 presidential election. Well, we're going to fix that. We're, they know now. <laughs> they know now. Mike, final word? Final word, it's really citizen action. Like in, in yeah. the military, every, every teenager who talks to a military recruiter should say, I would love to join the military, but I don't want to become some woke foot soldier in, in somebody else's political agenda. I just want to serve my country. Those recruiters are solid people. They're going to have to give that feedback up the chain. That people have to talk to their local congressional offices about this and say, hey, talk to the local recruiter who's hearing this from the people he's trying to recruit. So you need to have this kind of, of pushback from the citizen level, which is possible, in something as simple as that. Mm -hmm. uh, or as something as a, a newly retired uh, military people. A lot of people are quitting early. A lot of intelligence officers are quitting early. FBI agents are quitting early. But they feel alone and they feel isolated. So we just need to raise their voices and help bring them mm -hmm. together and let them know that we're not all alone. We all need to be working together on this. Well, I know I want to do what I can to help you guys do that. Uh, Fred, anything else you want? It was just great to be here. I, yeah. I, I hope your viewers will go to securefreedom.org, our website, securefreedom.org. We have important analysis every day on the national security threats facing our nation, and I hope your viewers will check it out and send us some feedback. Great. Mike Waller, Fred Flights, Center for uh, Security Policy. Thanks, and we've been watching The Bill Walton Show, and... Uh, Join us again for a next uh, interesting and, uh, I hope, uh, conversation that provides us with some lines of action to protect our freedom. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.